Welcome back to Women of AB Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I'm her sniffly, allergic <laughs> co-host, Kathleen Smith, a.k.a. Kiki Planet. How are you doing today, Deirdre? Oh, there's stuff. <laughs> yes. Everything is stuff right now. See that? But it's almost Christmas. It's almost Christmas. We have some fantastic guests. So yes. by the end of this hour, hopefully I'll be far more cheerier. Right? <laughs> Despite it being a very, uh, it's a difficult topic today. Mm-hmm. But, but an important um, one. An important one for all women. I yeah. Think. Absolutely. So let's not chat any longer <laughs> and get... Uh, and get our two guests today. We have Danielle Kaluski and Aditi Loveridge from the Pregnancy and Infant Loss Support Center. And welcome both of you. I don't even think I said the founders of. <laughs> so let's start with that. <laughs> Where did all of this come from? I'll tell you the backstory from my end and then when Danielle and I got connected. So I... Um, I used to work as a social worker many, many moons ago. Um, And when I was working as a social worker, that was when my partner and I decided to try um, to start a family. Mm -hmm. And um, my first pregnancy ended in a very traumatic, um, ectopic pregnancy um, that was misdiagnosed and mismanaged. Uh, There was systemic racism that experienced um, in the medical system at that time that led me to almost die from that ectopic pregnancy. Um, so very traumatic. Um, somehow after that loss, I found the courage to try again. And my second pregnancy ended in loss again, a later loss. Um, and then mustered up the courage again, somehow. I'm not, I really, when I look back at that time, I'm like, I don't know how I, how I kept doing this, but um went in again for the third time and that pregnancy resulted in my now living child um but that pregnancy was completely just anxiety inducing disconnected it was just one of the hardest moments in my life the losses were really tough but the i feel like the um my pregnancy after loss was even tougher and that trickled into my postpartum period with my child and so i ended up having a lot of uh, postpartum anxiety and Anyways, long story short, I knew that I didn't want to go back into social work. I didn't want to leave my child home while I worked and basically paid for childcare because uh, we all know social workers in nonprofit, we're not, <laughs> you're not making a ton of money. So um, I decided I was going to stay home and build a business. I didn't know what that business was going to be, but I took all these trainings. I took a loss doula training, a postpartum doula training, mindfulness meditation training, um, a coach certification, had no idea what was I do, what I was doing with any of it. Um, and then one of my very good friends called me um, and had found out at 22 weeks pregnant that her daughter um, had a um, terminal medical diagnosis and was not going to, to live outside of the uterus. Um, and so she asked me to attend that birth. And so I attended that birth and that's kind of where everything fell into place for me. Um, I was the only one who got to meet her daughter outside of her and her partner um, and hold her daughter and, and, you know, be a part of that process. But I knew I was in that room, not necessarily for that immediate 
acute grief support. Um, I supported her as a friend after, and I saw her needing support in the same ways that I did when I was going through my loss. And so I thought, well, it's not just me then. This this must be a thing <laughs> right? that people are feeling like, now what? Um, yeah. So then I started, so that was right away. I just, I threw up on Facebook, like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm starting a coaching business, coaching people through pregnancy and infant loss. Um, and then I got one client and then I got two, and then I got a whole bunch more. Um, and from my coaching business, I started to see like, I was supporting one person and then I'd support another person. And I'm like, well, these two people need to meet because their stories are so similar and they're feeling so isolated and alone. And so I started to host a social group where people could just come no matter what stage of loss and just connect socially with the community. Um, And then I had this idea, which is now what the Pregnancy and Infant Loss Support Center is. Um, And I met Dr. Stephanie Cooper, um, who I'm sure you've you've seen in the realm of Twitter. <laughs> she's, a, she's a Calgary uh, obstetrician. And yes, high risk. Yeah. OB, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she actually reached out to me right when I was in like the planning stages, uh, hadn't still found the, the courage to take that leap to, to actually finding the center. Um, she actually called me and said, I have quite a few patients that are seeing you. Can you and I meet for coffee? Cause I'd like to know more about what you're doing because my patients are finding a lot of comfort in your um, sessions. And so we met for coffee and I, I ended up telling her about this idea and she really validated and said, yes, it's a huge need. And that for me was the moment where um, that gave me the push to take the leap because I knew it wasn't only bereaved parents who felt the need, but there was the medical um, personnel and healthcare workers that also needed a place to refer people right. to meaningful um, and holistic support. And so <clears throat> I founded the center, didn't really, I, I mean, I still don't know what I'm doing, but <laughs> I really didn't know at that time. I am learning um, and getting much better over the years. Thank you. Thanks to Danielle, but we, um, I didn't have a board. I didn't have anything, um, but I had a very skeletal kind of, um, organization planned and I I held a community photo shoot where people could come bring their mementos from their journeys their babies and get a picture taken that I could use for marketing they could have memories they could connect with other people um again I didn't really have a website at that point I put it up on Facebook 55 uh families showed up Danielle was one of those people and so into in in walked that everybody says like we're like the yin and yang and like I had no idea that that day um I was gonna meet my like my soulmate my soul sister so um that's when Danielle came and I'll I'll let Danielle kind of share how we met and then why we're here together (laughs) yeah so um prior to meeting Aditi I had experienced a loss so it'll be 10 years this year my daughter was born still she's my second child and I I'm an educated individual and I know law, no idea that children and babies die in the uterus at 38 weeks. I thought like, once I get to this point, everything's good. NICU's good. Like I can handle anything. I had no idea um, that loss happened. And what I also didn't realize is the lack of support. So where I was in BC, there is nothing. There was one group, a support group. And I was told by the social worker, don't go to that group. You're not going to find support. It's very focused on miscarriage, um, not stillbirth. So your story is going to be too traumatic for those that are attending. Mm -hmm. And so right off the bat, I felt very alone. 
um, in that feeling alone, I knew that I wanted to change the story for other families. So I shared my grief on Facebook and in my social circles, and I consistently looked for organizations that were doing what I thought needed to be done. Um, that being said, about seven years into my journey is when I connected to Aditi. Somehow, I don't, I still don't know how it would happen, but I was on Instagram and I came across a posting for this community shoot. And I was like, oh, I don't really think I'm going to go. I already have plans that weekend. And then it came back up for me. And I was like, you know what? I need to, if I'm going to say, I'm going to share my story and I'm going to take part in all these studies through the Alberta, um, through the Cal um, University of Calgary, um, et cetera, et cetera. I need to go to this photo shoot. I need to see what this person is doing for our community and see if this is something that I want to kind of put my hat in on. Um, and when I emailed Aditi, she said, you know, like my first hour with families is full. Can you come in the second hour? It's only adults only, like you can bring your partner, but it's adults only. And I said, you know, like I can't bring my partner. I have young kids at home, but, you know, I'll go by myself. And I sat in my car that day going, am I making like the, a big mistake? Like I'm walking into this space by myself. Um, and walking up, I was so nervous, but as soon as Aditi welcomed me and she just started talking to me, I was like, this is it. We started talking, we had the photo shoot and we started talking about her plans and how I envision um, what a loss organization could look like. Uh, myself, I've worked for the United Way. I've worked in multiple sports um, nonprofits. So I have some nonprofit experience as well. As my prior career, I was um, a banker. So I come with like this variety of space. And I was like, I think we can do this. Um, and that was it. We connected that day. We went for coffee a week later. And here we are, um, two I, and a half years later, changing the lost community in huge ways. I, I love the story about how the two of you came into each other's lives, because I, it, this is something we're hearing more and more from women who find a special kinship in a, a shared goal. I don't know if either of you had the opportunity to listen to our podcast with Julita and Saudi, but their story is quite similar to yours, where the two of them walked into an event and saw each other uh, from across a room. And both of them said, you know, I see you. I see you. And that's really what the two of you have used as a starting point for this is acknowledging each other and acknowledging the pain and acknowledging how you can change that pain for other women. And that's an amazing kinship to feel. Uh, Didi, you, you touched a little bit on systemic racism and how that contributed to your feelings of isolation uh, after your losses and how it, how that racism prevented you from getting the care you likely needed. Could you expand on that for us just a little bit? Because I, I don't think uh, many people realize yet how systemic racism and also misogyny in general in our healthcare system negatively affects women when they need health care and support the most? Yeah, I mean, it affects um, like, um, like Black, Indigenous people of color, as well as, uh, you know, 
um, LGBTQ plus uh, people, like the ones that are most marginalized are the ones that are going to experience this kind of systemic um, racism. And when it happened, so um, what happened was, is I was having pain and bleeding. I did not know that I was pregnant uh, because I thought that I'd had a period. Um, I thought that I had a period like a month prior. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out that's very common in, in ectopic pregnancies, but I went in the first doctor who was, um, a woman that saw me at a different medical facility. She right off the bat said, okay, you're pregnant. And I think we're lo- you're losing it. And I think it's an ectopic pregnancy. We don't have the proper imaging here and we need to send you via ambulance because ectopic pregnancy is, is detrimental to your health. So that's what she did. She sent me in an ambulance to another um, medical facility, a hospital in Calgary. Um, I'm not going to name the hospitals. Um, and I and I went there. Um, and at that point, I was met with a by a male um, doctor who and and so my partner wasn't with me. My partner is white is a white man as well. Um, he wasn't with me. He was going to meet me there. Um, So when I arrived, this male doctor um, started to ask me about my dates of conception. Um, I, I, you know, and I, and I knew exactly, like we were, we were trying. So I knew exactly when we conceived, right? Um, I knew exactly my dates. There was no mistaking it. Then he proceeded to do um, an unwarranted breast exam. There is no reason in that moment that there should have been a, a breast exam. And I was alone in the room with him. Nobody else was present. My partner wasn't there yet. Um, then they said, okay, said, he started to basically question my dates, um, so, uh, started accusing me of being hypersexual. My partner wasn't there yet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And this is why, this is why I'm bleeding. And this is why this is happening. What is um, that? What, what hypersexual that, what yeah. does that have to do with anything whatsoever? Yeah, none of it had anything to do with anything, Kathleen. But like, nothing like being in the middle of an extremely traumatic healthcare experience and being accused of being a slut. Yeah, because that, that's what that is. That's an that attempt to slut shame you. Yeah, he he absolutely did. Um, and keep in mind, like, so I'm there by myself, like, and I exactly just found out that I was pregnant. Just found out that I'm likely losing it. Had never heard of an ectopic pregnancy, so I had no idea what was happening. Actually, and, there, yeah. uh, let me just cut in really quick there for anyone who doesn't know what an ectopic pregnancy might. Oh yeah, is yeah. What can you yeah, explain that? That's a good. <laughs> yeah, sorry, because I didn't know. <laughs> um, an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy um, that happens anywhere outside of the uterus, usually in the person's fallopian tube. Um, so as that baby grows, um, it becomes detrimental to the birthing person because that fallopian tube um, will rupture. There's no saving an ectopic pregnancy. Yeah. It's about saving the birthing person's life. Um, and yeah, they're usually detected around uh, around the six to seven week mark. Um, I was nine weeks pregnant when we found out. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, they sent me for imaging. Um, when I was being rolled back in, the doctor didn't was not did not realize that I had been rolled back in. Um, and at this point, my partner was there. When I got back into the room, my partner had showed up. And so we were both like, it was a shared triage space, right? So there's like a curtain. There's not right. privacy. There's just a curtain. But the doctor didn't realize that I had been rolled back in. 
And then I hear him asking for me, where is Aditi Leverage in a very contrived, loud East Indian accent. And for me in that moment, my heart started to race and I was like, what is happening? And he was saying, where is Aditi? And he was doing it mockingly in an East Indian eye. So for those listening, I am East Indian. Um, I do not have an accent. I've been here my entire life, born in India, but been here my whole life. Yeah, you had to explain it. <laughs> Nobody would have known. No, Missing, yeah, right? exactly. And I looked at my partner and he's white and he's like, what, what is that? And I'm like, that's the doctor. And then he turned around and saw me and a nurse came in and tried to like, oh, we didn't know you were back. Anyways, long story short, he ended up sending me home. He said, we couldn't find anything in your uterus. I don't think you're pregnant. I think uh, that you're miscarrying or you've already miscarried. And he sent me home where I ended up for one week bleeding so intense. Like it just gives me like chills to think about. I can't like when I say the pain that I was in and the only reason I ended up getting the treatment that I did, it was on December 26th. I went in December 25th that year into um, the ER and they sent me home as well. They said, I think you have a kidney infection. I'm like, that's not what it is. Um, oh my one, of my, one of my uncles is a, re- a very well-known radiologist in Calgary. And he put in a call for the next day so that I could go in. And then that, that radiologist was like, oh my goodness, we need to get you in right now. You have so much uh, like internal bleeding. Um, she's like, you got it. You have to get it now. And basically then I ended up with an emergency um procedure that Dr. Fiona Matatal um was the one who did my procedure um and she was lovely thank goodness so it ended up it ended up okay but I didn't know I was pregnant all of that happened I didn't process the fact that I had lost a baby for some time and I had pushed all of the events of that day down very deeply um for years actually, until I founded the center um, about two and a half years ago, three years ago was the first time that I publicly wrote about it because I I was like, and this is why it's a foundational mission of ours to ensure that when we're speaking of who we support, we're supporting BIPOC community members and LGBTQ plus members because they are vastly underrepresented in Mm. the parenting and law spaces. And we know that they're facing a lot more complexities when they're experiencing loss in the medical right. system. Danielle, what did you find were the, the toughest barriers to healing after your loss? Because I, uh, my understanding of, of what the two of you do together is to help uh, individuals and families heal through this process. So what did you find as barriers to your healing? I think, I think a lot of it came from, um, society, like not only just myself, but came from society and what I'd been told my whole life growing up that, you know, time heals all. I was told that, you know, when you're experiencing, like one of the common phrases I kept hearing is, well, you already have a child, so you can, you can just have another one. And for me, 
I was, I don't, I was never replacing a child, like to get pregnant again, when I got pregnant again and had my now um, third daughter who's living, I wasn't replacing the second one that wasn't here. And so for me, it was like finding accessibility as well as finding a community that understood it because I'd seen therapists, I'd seen quite a few talk therapists. So had my child, so had my husband and nobody got the loss piece. They got grief. They got Mm -hmm. grief. Great. You need to do X, Y, Z. This is, this is grieving, you know, whatever, but they didn't get that the loss of a child or the loss of a pregnancy comes with a whole bunch more stuff. It came, it comes with like, I lost my whole identity in that one moment. I lost my plans. I lost what I thought my child like future was going to look like what I thought my future was going to look like. I lost it all. In one moment of somebody telling me that my child's heart was not beating and that she was indeed dead, um, I lost all that. And every time I tried to connect with people here and there, um, outside of the lost community, most people didn't get it. And once I got past year two, everybody's like, "Why, why are you still talking about this? Why are you still sad? Yeah. Why are, why are you still having moments at work where you're getting super overwhelmed with everything? Um, and it wasn't until the floods of 2013 here in Calgary that the guy, the gentleman I was working with um, at that time said to me, I get it now. Because when the floods of 2013 happened, um, the bank I worked for went through all of this training on loss and grief and how to support your community and what we need to do for people because we had employees that had lost their homes and all this other stuff. And in that moment, the light shifted in me and I said, wait, if we're giving all this attention to people that lost their homes, extremely devastating. Why aren't we giving the attention to people like myself who've lost a pregnancy and are trying to get our feet underneath us and continue to paddle every day because every day grief is still there. It just changed, changed over the, the time. Do you have, have either of you found that uh, for women, there's also a lot of, it's, it's not real life guilt, but there's guilt that comes with that loss too, because uh, we're still a society. We're still a culture that looks for ways to blame women when a child is lost. I mean, I've, as a mother who lost a child, of course, my child was uh, almost 19 years old when he died, but there's still people who look for ways to blame me for his death, even though it had nothing to do with me. So I'm wondering if that's one aspect of the support and counseling that you provide to other women's and family, other women and families dealing with that loss. Yeah, I, I think that that, I think that is like a systemic issue as a whole for people, for women and birthing people um, that we're being blamed. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like we, because we, <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I do know why I have lots of thoughts on why, but um yeah, that's a huge thing. So, oh, I shouldn't have had that glass of wine. I shouldn't have gone on that trip. I shouldn't have done that. It's really prevalent in the TFMR, uh, which stands for Termination for Medical Reasons community in the within our lost community. Huge blame 
well, how did you know? What, how did you know that it was going to be? Isn't that a selfish decision to make that decision? Like you, mm-hmm. you killed your child. Like there's so much guilt and shame around it. And I think that really, um, yeah. really is, is a, a barrier to why a lot of, of people do not get support when they need it because they're feeling that themselves. So how do we find spaces that are safe that are not going to perpetuate that, that guilt and shame, but to say like, this was not your fault and the decisions that you made, if it was a TFMR were decisions made out of love. Um, and that's it. And I think that's something that women, um, women experience regardless of outlying factors. There's, they'll, they'll blame you and come up with a reason for the blame based on your race. They'll blame you and come up for a reason based on your size that I've been through having had a miscarriage where the first one was, well, maybe if you weren't so thin, Mm-hmm. And the second one was, well, maybe if you lost 30 pounds, yeah. there's always something, right? There's always a reason to, to blame us for that loss. Mm-hmm. And that seems to become uh, the worst barrier to healing that there is. How do we heal if we're facing a world that continually guilts us for a loss that's already eating us up inside? And a loss and a loss that does not have a cause or cure. So how can we be blamed when there is no, there is literally no research that shows that weight has anything to do with loss that mm-hmm. like all of these factors that, that, that people say, um, wine or this or that, or exercising or not exercising or, or stress or anxiety, like none of those things actually have been researched and proven to, to affect. Right. And so it's like, why are we doing this? It's, it's, it's astonishing actually. Yeah. And just yet another way to make response women responsible for things that we aren't responsible for Or another way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to control us too. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And this is, I, I'm, I mean, I've been shocked for the majority of this podcast so far um like shocked more into silence that these that these support systems didn't already exist for one um like I have uh my career kind of led me into an area where I was starting to become a little more social work which I I can't do because I'm uh because I'm a problem solver and I take stuff home so I cannot be in that space. And as I, as I saw that, that my career was kind of leading me in that direction, I was like, let's stop back up. I'm not, I can't go there. And I know this about myself, luckily, but I mean, so I've spent so much time uh, with community referrals and and, and knowing what community programs are out there and granted there, I mean, I worked as a career coach for two years in a space that had existed for, I'm going to say, close to a decade. And I remember someone coming in saying, I never knew these services existed, let alone this building that's in the town I live in, right? Like, I, so, I, so I also understand that, that yes, you know, if it's not something you're looking for, um, and, but it's, it's, it's really astounding to me listening to 
I guess all of you when you're saying these appropriate supports, these very, very necessary supports, because I'm just, I'm shocked that they didn't exist. I'm shocked that I, I mean, in a way that turned out to be beneficial for you creating the space for it, but I I'm, I'm shocked still. Okay. I'm still trying to process the fact that this didn't exist and, and how, how difficult that would be to go through it alone. Yeah. Yeah. It is shocking. It, it, it is shocking. And when I, um, when I worked as a social worker, that mm-hmm. was the thing I saw. I saw that there is literally a nonprofit charity organization for every cause. I mean, there's like for cats and, and <laughs> you know, like there's just, I mean, there's literally a cause, an organization for everything. And then when I had my loss, I was like, whoa, there, like, oh, is- there's nothing. Wow. I mean, there's, there's Alberta Health Services, but outside of a, like a government organization, there was not, there was nothing. Um, and so I, and I really felt like it was important to start this, not only of course, for the support, but from the subconscious piece of it, of sending a message to society that this does deserve support. Right. Yeah. Because when there isn't, we're hidden, it's hidden. I think we've also seen over, uh, the last, especially the last five to 10 years and Danielle, maybe you can speak to this a little that women are being far more open about this loss too. Social media has made it possible for women to share their stories. Um, We've seen several high-profile women and families in Alberta speak out about their loss in a very Mm -hmm. public matter. Uh, Carrie Skelton and Ryan Ryan Jesperson have spoken about uh, their loss. Zane Velji, our friend from the podcast, uh, the strategist and, and his partner recently experienced a loss and, and they've been very open and and sharing about that too. So Danielle, I'm wondering how, how important do you think it is for uh, women and their partners and families as the whole to be open about this loss, the pain it, it causes and, and how they move through that pain? You know, I think it's key to our grief journey. When I experienced my loss, there was one other person in my group that had experienced a miscarriage. However, there, she said to me, Danielle, it was an early miscarriage. I didn't even know I was pregnant, like nothing. She was like, you know, um, I don't really have any thoughts for you because for me, it was a different story. I then, as we stole, shared our story on social media, I had a relative reach out to me who is a nursing and she says, I had a stillbirth at 20 weeks. Um, and it was so 20 years, or I think it's over 20 years now. And when she told me that not one person in her family or in anybody knew about her loss because she'd had it in England. Um, we just, everybody assumed that the age difference in her kids was because they had a whoops baby when in actuality it was because there had been a, there had been a fourth child, technically third, but um, in actuality, there is another child who had died and she just didn't feel comfortable sharing it. And she didn't know where to share it. And that was 20 years ago. And it was through our conversation with her that I was like, I'm not hiding this. 
I want every single relative I have and every single friend I know to know that I have this loss, that I am here and I want to talk with them and I want to support them. Because when I had my loss, I was located in BC and BC does not have a government or an Alberta health or like a health program. You have a social worker and you go to the hospice. Those are your options. So for me, I knew that we had to do something which is when Aditi and I connected, I said, this has to be national. Like it's not good enough for us to be in Calgary. This has to be national and we need to get to communities that don't have what Alberta has because there are people who find Alberta Health Services it matches them up here, which is great. But there's a lot of people that are outside of Calgary, outside of Edmonton that don't have anything. We think of our rural areas and they're already lacking healthcare supports. They experience a loss of a pregnancy. How much more isolated are they now? And they can't get to us, which is why when COVID happened and we turned to a virtual platform, it was, it was life-changing for us. And it was life-changing for our community because now you don't have to be in a big city to see our counselors or to get coaching. You can log onto your computer or pick up the phone and we can support you where you are. And that is like immediate or 10 years down or the grandparents or the siblings. Mm -hmm. Being in a rural community and already feeling isolated and then trying to work through a, a loss like this without any kind of support organization in a, a, a travelable radius. I can't imagine what that is like for women and families who experience such a, a debilitating loss and then feel even more isolated. How do you advise women in that sort of situation, Aditi? What, what support and advice can you give them when isolation is already such a huge factor in their lives? Yeah, I would, I would, it's tough. And I think my answer would have been much different pre COVID. <laughs> um, but COVID one of the one, and probably the only good thing to come out of COVID <laughs> um, was that we did get that opportunity to pivot our support. Like when we first, um, we actually moved into our new space January 2020. And then of course, COVID hit, and we haven't been back. And Danielle and I were like, oh my goodness, all this hard work is going to be lost. And it wasn't because we pivoted. We actually started a helpline um, as a response to COVID-19. And now that's one of our fastest growing um, programs where people can text and chat on the website to peer volunteers. So they're they're not chatting with professionals. They're connecting with community, people that understand or can relate to this journey. Um, And I think that's probably my biggest advice is if you're feeling isolated now because of COVID and social media and everything being online, you can really tap into community from anywhere you are. So it's kind of taking that, that really first courageous, scary and brave step to, to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to either, you know, text this helpline or I'm going to attend a group And, and, and it feels more doable or digestible or tangible when you don't have to leave your home. <laughs> like you yeah. can do it from the comfort of your couch, which for grieving people, I think that takes out a huge barrier. So now I don't have to actually drive and show up in a space. I can, I can do it from the safety of my own yeah. space. And that, but, that really can be a debilitating factor. I know my personal experience with, with grief and loss uh, there, there were days on end when I didn't move from the sofa. It wasn't mm-hmm. move from the bed 
to the sofa. It was just on the sofa 24-7. The thought of having to clothe myself and drive someplace when I could, when you're in that depth of, of grief, when you're in that black hole, the tasks that seem just like normal everyday tasks become insurmountable. Driving to the grocery store for me was something I couldn't do. I couldn't focus long enough to drive. Mm-hmm. Just getting cleaned up and dressed for the first year of that grief was so difficult for me. It was like a her, her, Herculean task. Mm-hmm. So for for women to be able to reach you through a helpline, to reach you um, through Zoom, that must have been a, a big change for your organization on a go forward basis and, and how you connect with those who are grieving. Oh, it was a game changer. Um, we grew 300% um, over the last 20 months because of that, because we took away barriers such as location, transportation, childcare for those who have living children, mm-hmm. all of that, all of that went away. And so now people from everywhere are accessing our supports. And so we, it really changed us um, as an organization because we've always said we're accessible. We offer di- like diverse support options and we're an accessible space. Now we're like, wow, accessibility for us means something um, even deeper and coming out, coming out. I keep saying coming out of COVID. We're not coming out of COVID, but whatever this next part of this <laughs> thing is, um, as we navigate our way through COVID, we are going to always have the remote piece. So even moving it back into in-person groups and so forth, we're, we're already planning that we're moving into a hybrid um, service model where people can who can and want mm-hmm. to attend in person can, but we have this really cool technology now that like you can you can zoom in, but you're still a part of that in person group because it's it's giving accessibility, which is huge because because like you said, Kathleen, right? It sometimes is it's you are on the couch, and to expect people to come to us in that state is is not not being supportive actually, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's an impossibility yeah. for for many who have experienced the loss of a child, it is an impossibility, especially during those first few months, those, uh, those first few dark weeks to even take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. The loss consumes you. It doesn't matter if the loss is during pregnancy, if the losses of a young child, an adult child, my friend who also lost uh, an adult child, my friend and I have discussed often how we belong to a club that no parent should mm-hmm. ever have to be a member of. Out, outliving your own child, regardless of the age of that child, is an horrific experience. So the fact that the two of you have created something that can help others through that loss is monumental and that you've made made it so accessible because there's so much out there that isn't accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. It's great for those who can take the first steps to get there. But if you're not there yet, you need something that comes to you. And the two of you have managed to create that. And that's 
I mean, that's phenomenal. That is, it's not just something that should be celebrated. We have such gratitude for that because that's sometimes the work has to go to the people instead of the people coming to the work. Mm-hmm. So thank you both for doing that. Thank and you. that brings me next to Bill 220 because I, I'm listening, obviously. I have not experienced this. So it, it does make it difficult to contribute. I'm happy to let Kathleen go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but now I'm, I'm listening to your experiences and your stories and the longevity of the experience itself, Bill 220 kind of seems like not a lot in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I'm, yeah. just, I'm like, oh, wait, <laughs> that's, wow. Uh, tell us about Bill 220. Yeah, so we got introduced <laughs> to Bill 220, um, Emily Jordan Walker. Um, in Edmonton reached out to us. Um, He got chosen for private members bill and bill 220, which is an amendment to the bereavement um, leave. The bill is basically amending that bereavement leave to include miscarriage and stillbirth into that, where you would receive, if you've had a miscarriage or stillbirth, where you would receive three days time off unpaid. Yeah, that's, that's, that's where that's, yeah. Yeah. So that, so he reached out, we had a beautiful round table with him. He seems like a very, a person very committed to, to wanting to do this. And we're very appreciative of that. So he reached out, we did a round table with him. And then he asked me to speak with the legislative assembly when, uh, for in the second reading, they invited key stakeholders to attend. And so I attended that meeting, which was such an honor. And I shared that we are very appreciative of this, of of the amendment, and it's a really good first step and there needs to be so much more. Yes. Yes. So much more. And this Uh, actually made me wonder too, is that, I mean, isn't that, is that the standard of three days? Like if my spouse passed away, then technically I get three days unless my company says, you know what, we actually, we'll, we'll give you a whole week. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, and it's three days. Um, so it's a three days job protected but unpaid leave. And so when I in that in that in that I don't know what I call it speech or talk, whatever Mm -hmm. in that meeting, one of the things was exactly um, Deirdre, what you said was um, that this is something that it's not this just acute phase. It's not this oh you have the loss and then two weeks later you're good. Right. it's, it's a lifelong experience. Like we, we carry our grief with us into all aspects of our life and on our parenting journey. So that's one piece of it, right? So on a year anniversary of the loss of your child, lots of people want to take that day off as they should. Your what year two and three are often harder than year one. Cause you're, you're not in survival mode anymore. You're actually processing stuff. But aside from that for pregnancy and infant loss, Three days, as as in, in my first story with my ectopic, that process to the process just to, for me to actually get to the surgery point right. took two weeks. For Danielle, Danielle's labor with her daughter took three days. So, is it's not enough? Um, it is as I mentioned, like as I said multiple times, it's a good first step because what it does is it's starting to raise the awareness around it, and that's huge and gives um, some recognition. 
get yeah. some recognition. Um, it, it's, but it's not enough, not only in terms of the time off, but in terms of like government working with organizations such as us, right? So now you're gonna, now you're gonna give this time off. Well, let's connect and educate and bring real meaningful support to employees so that while they're off, they're actually getting connected properly. Otherwise there's right. a huge gap yeah. and, and none of it's being supported. And what will end up happening and what does happen is employees don't take adequate time off because they don't have the finances to. And marginalized communities are the most uh, people that you cannot take time off. So they don't take time off, they push back. And then literally a year later, they crash and they burn. They end up having to take way more time off. Mm-hmm. And let's be real, those employees I mean, effect, it affects everything. It affects the economy. It affects everything when we are not supporting and offering meaningful support for such a life-changing, monumentous moment. Yeah, and life-changing is, those are very important words. There's still this, uh, this attitude that we should just get over these losses. There's this attitude that, you know, give it a year, she'll be back to her old self. Mm-hmm. Or the attitude that you need to get over it. You need to get back to normal. But what we don't discuss is there is no normal to get back to after one of these losses. This is the kind of loss. It's the kind of experience that changes you forever. There's no going back from it. There's no returning to who you were before that loss happened. And too much of what we do after such a loss is about returning a person to pre-loss when that's an impossibility. It's an impossibility uh, psychologically. It's an, an impossibility emotionally. And all too often, it's an impossibility physically because this kind of loss, aside from the, um, the actual physical side effects of the loss, the grief itself affects us physically. It changes us physically. So Danielle, how do you think we support those who have lost and experienced this loss without a focus on, we're going to get you back to normal. We're going to get you back to where you were before, because we know that's not what's needed. How do we support without putting that pressure on them? Really good question. And I would say that I wish somebody would have said to me, 10 years ago, you are not going to be the Danielle you were before because I wasn't. And I kept trying personally, trying to get back to that person. I kept even at work. I was in a very, very fast track position with the bank I worked at. I had very big um, plans for myself. And when I went back from that loss, I actually put everything on hold. I just stop everything because I could not function. I was lucky enough that my stillbirth happened late enough in my pregnancy that I got 15 weeks of of maternity leave. My partner got, uh, he took a week of vacation and then they gave him a week. That's the type of recovery time we're asking somebody who's just given birth to a child. In 15 weeks, you need to be back at work. In, In two weeks, your partner needs to be back at work. Neither one of us were ready to go back to work. Neither, I had not even taken my nursery down until the week I went back to work. 
So when you ask like how it's to have the conversation, it's to acknowledge that grief is grief, that it's going to be here our whole life. And that is what we do at the center is we acknowledge that we, where you are in your journey is where you are in your journey. So your grief may look different in year one. It may look, it will look different in year 10, but neither place is wrong. And like I said, when I went back to work after working with my colleague for, I think it was about eight months, he looked at me and said, I get it. I get that we're asking you to be somebody that you can't be. I get that we need to acknowledge that this changed you, that this changed how you feel. And for once, somebody said to me, Danielle, you don't have to go on that track. It's okay for you to go on this track. It's okay for you to look. And what turned out was that after I gave birth to my um, third child and who's my second living child, I left that complete, that role completely because I could not be that person I was. And I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to be the Danielle that was going to deal with the grief and be honest with her grief. And I needed to do that in a completely different space. So it's the conversation that matters. The conversation we're having today, Kathleen, you sharing that it took you, you know, so much time to get off your couch. That's what we need to share because that was me. I thought there was something mentally wrong with me when I could barely get off the couch at three o'clock to pick my child up from her bus because I did have a living child. I thought that I was, there was something mentally wrong with me. There was something wrong that I didn't want to walk into a uh, grocery store or I could only go through a drive-through because I didn't want to deal with people. And every time somebody said, oh, how are you today? I looked at them and said, terrible. Thanks. Yeah. 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 And the, the rage too. Right. Like I dealt with so much rage after I lost my son where just look at me the wrong way and I'm going to bite your head off. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have harsh words for you. I, I vented that rage online. I vented it at family. I, I vented it alone at my TV because the rage at having to go through that grief was eating me up inside. And we don't talk about that much either because women aren't supposed to be angry. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. none of us are supposed to be angry, but it's even worse for women of color, mm-hmm. right? If they're angry, then there's all the stereotypes that go along with that too. There's all uh, the racism associated with it. So all women are told, don't express any anger. Mm-hmm. And yep. yet the and anger is very real. Very real. And I, and I think like to, to add to what Danielle was saying too, is, is having this conversation is one way that we, we help people recognize that there is no going back to normal, but it's also like, normalizing this right instead of instead of being like oh my goodness Kathleen is angry being like yeah I swear I was about to swear I don't know if we're allowed oh, you to can. Oh, yeah, yeah you can we <laughs> swear a lot <laughs> like, okay. yeah we you're fucking like angry like yeah. you're fucking angry you just lost a child there's nothing yeah. wrong with you right so it's like what we do and what we strive to do is sit with people in all of the feelings and normalize and validate that because I am sorry. There is no other way to feel how you're feeling right now after, again, a very life-changing moment is how you feel. And we don't need to get you out of that. We need to sit and honor it and be with you in it, not make you change yourself. I always say to my clients, you are not broken. There's nothing for you to fix here. Your mind is not broken. Your heart is. 
I will sit with you while you mend this broken heart. And that I love may that. never mend. I, I sit and honor it. Sit with you and honor it. Mm-hmm. I love that because I think that is what so many who experience this loss are craving and need and ha- haven't been getting. And here the two of you are offering that. And yeah. that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. And, I, and, I, and we do see when we give permission, I see it with my clients. I had a, a client uh, come to me who experienced a full-term stillbirth. They came to me uh, like weeks after and already back to work and was like, yeah, no, I just, I don't, I, I, I feel like I feel like I should be over it. Like I, you know, why am I feeling sad? And I was like, it's three. And I literally was like, and as soon as I shifted that conversation to normalize that it's been weeks Mm -hmm. and gave them that permission, everything changed. It was like, oh yeah, that is that, that moment where they're like, you're right. This matters. Give one sentence that you want someone right now who's, who's just experienced this loss to hear. If, if you could give them one thing to hear right now that honors the, the place they're in, what, what would you say to them? I would say that, A, you're not broken. <laughs> this isn't your fault. And there are people out here that will help navigate this journey and that you're not alone. So find your people. Danielle? I'd say something very similar. Um, I think what I would say, I would say is that loss is hard and you have to lean into those hard emotions because if you don't, your body is going to make you lean into those hard emotions. And we see it all the time. As much as we're uncomfortable, we may not have the the family behind us, we may not have ever experienced those hard emotions or leading into them, but you need to lean into those hard emotions mm-hmm. um, because they're going to show regardless of what we try. Mm-hmm. And Deirdre, we're going to add information about where our listeners can, oh, yes. uh, can get hold Find of you. both Aditi mm-hmm. and Danielle. Yes. Yes. And uh, I guess actually the only, the only question that I was, that I was kind of having, because again, I'm in a different space, but the space that I'm in feels like there's something I could do as well. So what is that thing <laughs> where, <laughs> where we're, and is it, and I mean, is it, I, I'm, I'm also thinking of, well, obviously, you know, you can provide a space and you can listen. That's yeah. great. Um, but is there, is there anything else for, you know, for someone, your, your friend, your daughter, your like somebody that you know, that's going through this, what do we do? Yeah, that's a really good question. We, we've hosted a couple of workshops for how to support people um, through loss. Um, so you can always join us for one of those in the new year. Um, but uh, a couple of like quick tips would be show up right? Show up. Just as Danielle was saying, like, lean into those difficult emotions. It's the same for support people. Don't let your discomfort stop you from showing up. Um, 
You don't have to have the right thing to say. You can just sit with someone and say, I'm here. You don't even have to physically be there. So instead of sending a text message and say, you know, it's like, you know, those text messages that we get that are like very empty. Those like, let me know if you need anything. Right. <laughs> Grieving people don't know what they need. Um, yeah. So instead of asking them what they need, showing up dropping a, a coffee on their step and saying, Hey, I dropped off some coffee or, Hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Um, and I bought, I bought this for you, or I'm sending over supper or, Hey, I'm coming over and I'm taking your living children out of the house so that you can rest. Right. And, yeah. and, if, and then also if they say, no, I'm good. Not taking that offensively. Right. Um, but I think that that's like the biggest thing is showing up. And then also my other piece is, talk about it we're not going to make grieving people who've lost a child feel worse by talking about it they feel worse when we go out of our way to not talk about it so on like milestone dates occasions at christmas write a note like if i'm writing you know a, a note to danielle's family i will include her daughter's name if it's people without living children acknowledging them on mother's and father's day um acknowledgement um is huge and so it goes back to the same advice that danielle gave lean into that discomfort and be like this is uncomfortable and yet we need to show up in love and support so i'm going to sit with this discomfort for you okay that'd be my advice and then of course if you're financially able i'm i we run a charity here <laughs> um so i'm gonna say so if you if this is close to your heart for any reason whether you personally experienced it or you're a support person, um, we can donate. And we have a legacy sponsorship program that we're starting in the new year. So you can sponsor a date, a meaningful date. So if you've lost a child on a date, that will pay for an entire day um, of our helpline um, support services. And you'll be honored, your child's name will be honored on that day. Um, and it helps pay it forward. And it helps organizations like ours continue to show up with meaningful support. Mm -hmm.